This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. It's a place where we talk about important things. It's a place where we bring a little slice of the news to you. And it's a place where we do important things, have important conversations. It's also things that I like to talk about. My name is Cameron Cowan, and this is the Cameron Journal Podcast. same issue we always have hello everyone don't mind me as my fancy 4k camera that always seems to be initializing or not working or something continues to initialize and not work um which is always fun um and that's a lumina problem so Hello everyone, my name is Cameron Cowan. Welcome to the Cameron Journal News Hour. We have a full passel of stories, a full week of news. Um, pardon my mess in the background. As you know, I am getting ready to move in a matter of weeks and uh, the moving process has already begun. Um, I like to get a head start on packing, and so um, I, um, I've already started um, started to get uh, get going on all of that, which is is fun. I'll, I'll admit I'm a bit uh, I'm lagging a bit today because I, um, <laughs> I did not end up sleeping last night, um, and I've had a full day of meetings, all good things, all exciting things, but a full day of meetings nonetheless. And so it's been a lot, a lot going on, a lot happening, um, and, uh, and so it's been, I'm a little... I'm a little this way and that way, a little out of sorts. There's been phone calls and meetings and text messages, and it's just been insanity. All good insanity, all good things, all good problems to have. Problems I've been waiting to have for a long time. Um, and it, launching lots of exciting new things and getting to bring friends into projects and all this type of thing. But that does not make it any less stressful or any less tiring, especially when my body decides... Oh, you took the weekend off and rested and relaxed and slept and napped? Well, now no sleep for you. You get nothing and you'll like it. Um, that was my body's attitude um, today, which is always, always fun. So that's a, a great, a great fun thing. I cannot believe we're in the middle of August. Um, I, this is the, I believe this is the second yes this is the second to last news hour 
we're going to have before the break. So next week is the 21st. That's the last one. And then we'll be taking a month off while I move to the East Coast, get new furniture, get settled in, all this type of thing. Um, <clears throat> so, um, that's, uh, going to be a lot. Um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it though. All good things. Um, and, uh, and, you know, lots of excitement, um, in terms of getting ready for, for that and, um, getting, you know, things mobilized in terms of, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the moving process and all this type of thing, which involves an enormous amount of paperwork, which is weird. Um, but it does. So that's all coming, coming together and still, you know, getting a plot and plan together and figuring out, you know, what's going to happen and how it's all going to work and all this type of thing and organizing the money for it. And, um, so that's, that's all, um, all in progress, all happening. So it's, it's all, it's all, it's all good. So let's turn to the news. We have some great stuff coming in. Um, so one of the things that just kind of broke um, this afternoon and is still very much a developing story is um, Argentina once again devalues its currency. Um, it says here on Bloomberg, out of options and money, Argentina presses the panic button. Central bank hikes key interest rate to 118% from current 97%. Decision comes after Peronist coalition came third in primary. Argentina's government finally hit the panic button. After years of trying to avoid a currency devaluation that would add to soaring inflation and reduce its popularity with voters, on Monday it did just that. The move was an admission by President Alberto Fernandez that his administration had run out of options and money to defend an unsustainable exchange rate after suffering a seeing defeat in a crucial primary election on Sunday. The 18% devaluation takes the official peso rate to $350 per dollar, compared to $287 per dollar on Friday, and comes with another large hike in the central bank's key interest rate. It was lifted 21 percentage points to 118%. The drastic decisions will do little to calm investors, with Argentine assets slumping since the stronger-than-expected performance on Sunday by libertarian candidate Javier Millet, who wants to dollarize the economy and abolish the central bank. Argentines who don't have access to dollars in the official market race to buy them in the parallel market on the streets of Buenos Aires, pushing the rate down as much as 12% to around 690 pesos per dollar, according to the website dollarhoy.com. The nation's bonds, already deeply distressed, led declines across emerging markets. Stocks also sank, with the U.S. trade ETF at one point plunging the most since March 2020 before trimming losses. Fernandez is well aware of the risk that devaluation brings. Less than a month ago, Fernandez told Bloomberg Television that an abrupt devaluation would be a problem for Argentina. Without winning the trust of the investing community first, the move could fan a devaluation inflation spiral that's difficult to break. Inflation is already running at 150% annual pace. In Argentina, a country with a hyperinflation past and a rate of price increases, nowadays of 6% per month, it takes little time for political turmoil and market tumbles to spill into the real economy. On Monday morning, there were already preliminary reports that some business suppliers were ratcheting up their prices, adding to the growing sense of crisis in the country at the October 22nd presidential election. 
or in a context of a very low credibility, so we expect monthly inflation in August or at the latest September to enter the double-digit territory. Two digits means 10% easily. Gabriel Camano, economist of the Buenos Aires Consultora Ledesma. To a certain degree, Monday's drama supports the argument, espoused by Malay, a libertarian who believes the Argentine government, officials are incapable of properly managing the country's money supply and controlling inflation. Malay, who is now the front-runner going into October's general election, proposes a drastic reduction of government spending and taxes, privatizing deficit-making public companies, and eventually getting rid of its autonomous monetary policy. While his electoral success, he came out first at the primary with about 30% of votes, shows his rightist agenda resonates with Argentine's target government project prodigality and economic disasters. At the same time, his lack of executive experience and an expected divided Congress opens questions about governability. Argentina has a history of monetary decisions, such as picking the peso to the dollar of the 1990s, that didn't end well. For the ruling Peronist coalition coming out third, behind the more business-friendly opposition, is a disastrous result because it confirms there will be a three-way race in October, with an increasing chance of a runoff in November between the top two candidates. The government's contender, economy minister Sergio Massa, will now have an even steeper path to qualify for a runoff, given how the devaluation will likely hit Argentine consumers hard. So, I thought that was interesting. Um, I know that they were having debt problems and had, I think, defaulted for the fifth time last year due to money and monetary issues. So, it's no surprise that people are looking for relief when you're talking about those... Um, those types of numbers. So, <clears throat> um, speaking of all things inflation, um, the July inflation report arrived last week, and here in the United States, uh, consumer prices rose 3.2% in the year through July, an uptick in the headline rate that masked more encouraging details for the Federal Reserve in its campaign to tame inflation. Um, it says here, uh, fresh from the New York Times, fresh inflation data offered economists and policymakers further evidence that price increases are meaningfully cooling. Good news more than a year into the Federal Reserve's campaign to slow the economy and wrestle cost increases back under control. The consumer price index climbed 3.2% in the year through July, according to a report released on Thursday. That marked the first acceleration in 13 months and followed a 3% reading in June. But that pickup required context. Inflation was rapid in June of last year and slightly slower for the following month. That means that when this year's numbers were measured against 2022 readings, June looked lower and July appeared higher than if the year-ago figures had been more stable. Economists are more keenly focused on another figure, the core inflation index, that strips out volatile food and fuel prices. That picked up by 4.7% over the past year, down from 4.8% in June. And on a monthly basis, the core inflation climbed just 0.2%, matching an encouragingly low reading in the previous month. The upshot of the report was that the inflation continues to cool, and the July details offered positive signs for the future. Rent prices have been moderating, a trend that is expected to persist in coming months, which should help weigh down inflation overall. An index that tracks services prices outside of housing is picking up only slowly. This is, a, this is continuing the kind of progress I think you want to see, said Omar Sharif, the founder of Inflation Insights, a research firm. Overall, this is pretty good news. Airfares fell sharply. Hotel costs, ease and used cars became cheaper last month. Big drops in those categories may be difficult to sustain, but are helping to limit price increases for now. <clears throat> um, 
they do mention because I always talk when you when we talk about inflation, we always have to remember they tend to remove food and fuel. And it says here gas prices began to pick up at the end of July, although the jump came too late to matter much for the month's report. It has persisted into August and will probably prop up inflation in the next set of figures, which will be the last ones released before the Fed meets to make its next decision on interest rates. Uh, Paul Ashworth, the chief North America economist at Capital Economics, wrote, Other than triggering a rebound in airline fares via high, via higher jet fuel prices, we expect the knock-on impact of higher fuel costs to be pretty modest. Although, he added, there was nothing to hear to suggest that the Fed needs to push ahead with further interest rate hikes this year. Which is, I think, everybody's hope that the price of borrowing money um, will not... Um, uh, will not continue to rise because that has knock-on effects throughout the whole the whole economy. Um, this and now while we're on the subject of things financial, um, and then we'll get to Hawaii and Hunter Biden and other fun stuff. Um, you may have remembered, and I covered it here on the News Hour, that um, we Credit Suisse um, collapsed and was bought up by UBS. And I found this interesting story over the weekend where it says Credit Suisse collapsed and Switzerland went back to making money. It says here, despite widespread calls for reform in the wake of the country's biggest banking shock, little has changed. Is that stability or complacency? In 2022, it was Schwinger, or traditional Swiss wrestlers, that were the star attraction. This year, it was youth groups. Every August 1st, since 1891, patriotic Swiss have gathered on an alpine meadow overlooking Lake Lucerne to commemorate a rebellion in, seven, in 1291 that was the foundation of modern Switzerland. This is a country that likes tradition. It was a very different kind of youth who, in March, swarmed the headquarters of Credit Suisse on Zurich's Paradeplatz in an extraordinary display of anger at the normally staid epicenter of Swiss banking. Young protesters wrote messages like, Cretan Suisse in shock outside the bank's headquarters, as demonstrators bellowed their discontent through megaphones. Newspaper editorials were filled with columns about how a national humiliation and regulators stressed the need for major change. Some questioned whether Switzerland had a future as a predominant banking center. Credit Suisse was, after all, an icon of the Swiss economy that financed the country's railroads. So its government brokered rescue by UBS Group to prevent it from collapsing and wreaking havoc across the global banking sector was one of the biggest blows to the national psyche since the 2002 demise of the national icon Swiss Air, and was seen by many as something that could, or should, trigger a profound change to the way the country works. Yet, four months on, there are few signs that anyone is readying for a major change in Switzerland. It's almost as if most Swiss heaved a collective shrug and the country went back to making money. Unemployment has barely budged, and is not expected to move much even after the bank layoffs. The country's annual inflation rate of 1.6% remains the envy of the industrialized world, and the almighty Swiss franc has even gained value since March when the deal was brokered. The apparent lack of change since March stems from what makes Switzerland what it is, a 13th century nation which takes pride in its reputation as a bastion of stability on a continent repeatedly torn apart by war. A country that first gave women the right to vote only in 1971, decades after the rest of the Western world. It's a nation where if change occurs, it happens very, very slowly. There's a big risk that nothing happens, said Michael Herman, director of Swiss Political Research Institute Sotomo in Zurich. Because you get used to the new situation with a huge bank, and if it works, why would you change anything? But is Switzerland missing an opportunity to repair and improve its reputation for competence and prudence, so tarnished in the eyes of international investors in the wake of the takeover by UBS? The run-up to federal elections set for October 22nd will offer a stage for national debate on that, but some believe it's already too late. There are politicians who want to make the Credit Suisse debacle a catalyst for reform, 
and an election issue, but feel that it has already been swept under the rug, said Jaron Bibler, a former regulator at the Swiss Stock Exchange. We're all surprised by how quickly the issue seems to have dissipated, he says. Bibler, who wrote a book about Iceland's banking crisis, says there are similarities with the Nordic nation in 2006 when it failed to properly address the need for banking reform. In Switzerland, you have a real culture of circling the wagons among the elites. The first step to solving a problem is often acknowledging that you have one, but if you speak to those elites ranging from the central bank to the government and parliament, such forthright admissions are rare. Instead, many will say Credit Suisse's rescue is a testament to the country's strengths. The way Credit Suisse was saved speaks in favor of the stability of our country, says Thierry Bouchard, MP and president of the center-right Free Democratic Party. We prevented massive damage to the financial system of Switzerland, and possibly even to Europe and the whole Western world. Yeah, I don't think they're going to do anything about that. Swiss banking regulations are steeped, steeped in long traditions of privacy and sanctity and all sorts of things. And the chances of them overturning the apple cart over a minor banking crisis um, is is rather, uh, rather limited, I think. So, um, I don't, I don't foresee them being like, oh, it's time for reform, and they're not, the Swiss don't do reform, they're not reformists, they don't reform. Um, they, uh, they do what they're gonna do with what they do, and, and that's all there is to it. And so, um, no, I don't think I don't think the Credit Suisse situation was going to cause reform because here's the thing: the Credit Suisse situation could have been prevented, and no one did anything, as they always don't. It could have been prevented, and it wasn't. It was specifically let go, to continue on, the way it was, and that is um, really unfortunate. Um, and it could have been quite a disaster. Um, I was very afraid that this whole Credit Suisse thing was going to become a Lehman moment, and that wasn't going to end well for everybody. And the Swiss pulled it out and figured it out, and that's fine. But anybody thinking that that's going to cause a change in the Swiss banking system, you were hopeful, unnecessarily. So, this is an interesting story here. Um, the U.S. reached a deal with Iran to free Americans for jailed Iranians and funds. It says here, five American detainees will eventually be allowed to leave Iran in exchange for Tehran gaining access to $6 billion for humanitarian purposes and the United States freeing several jailed Iranians. The United States and Iran have reached an agreement to win the freedom of five imprisoned Americans in exchange for several jailed Iranians and eventual access to about $6 billion in Iranian oil revenue, according to several people familiar with the deal. As a first step in the agreement, which comes after more than two years of quiet negotiations, Iran has released five Iranian-American dual citizens into house arrest, according to officials at the State Department and the National Security Council. This is just the beginning of a process that I hope and expect will lead to their return home to the United States, Secretary of State Antony J. Blinken said on Thursday. There's more work to be done and to actually bring them home. My belief is that this is the beginning of the end of their nightmare. The prisoners are Simiak Namazi, Ahmad Shargi, Morad Tabaz, who had all been jailed on unsubstantiated charges of spying, as well as two others whose families withheld their names. One of the unnamed Americans is a scientist and the other is a businessman, according to two people briefed on arrangements of the release. 
the three named prisoners and the one other person were transferred on Thursday from Ivan Prison, one of the most notorious detention centers in Iran, to a hotel in Tehran, the capital, where they will be held for several weeks until they're allowed to board an airplane. Jared Genzer, a lawyer for Mr. Namazi, said one other prisoner, an American woman, had been released into house arrest earlier, according to several people familiar with the arrangements who spoke on condition of anonymity to discuss the final deal. While I hope that this will be the first step to their ultimate release, this is the, at best the beginning of the end and nothing more, Mr. Genzer said in the statement, but there are simply no guarantees about what happens from here. He said the Americans were told they would be held at the hotel under guard by Iranian officials. Ali Bagheri Khani, Iran's deputy foreign minister and chief nuclear negotiator, said the United States and Iran had reached a deal for a prisoner exchange and the release of Iran's billions of dollars of assets. He said Iran had received, quote, the commitments necessary from the United States that it would honor the deal. Iran's state news agency, IRNA, reported that five Iranians would be released from American prisons in exchange for five Americans released by Iran. Iranian media presented the deal as a victory for the conservative administration of President Ibrahim Razi and called it honorable diplomacy. Biden administration officials declined to comment or to confirm details about what Iran will get in return, but the people familiar with the agreement said that when the Americans are allowed to return to the United States, the Biden administration will release a handful of Iranian nationals serving prison sentences for violating sanctions on Iran. The United States will also transfer nearly $6 billion of Iran's existing assets in South Korea, putting the funds into an account in the Central Bank of Qatar, according to the people familiar with the deal. The account will be controlled by the government of Qatar and regulated so Iran can gain access to the money only to pay vendors for humanitarian purchases such as medicine and food. Um, there's been a lot of diplomacy in the Middle East lately. Um, in fact, it's mentioned here that uh, this prisoner exchange could um, help revive the uh, nuclear deal that had been signed with Iran under the Obama administration and that Trump had torpedoed. It also mentioned, and, and this was very interesting, um, that Ch China brokered an agreement to restore relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Um, keeping in mind, these are historical enemies because they're opposite religions. Uh, the Iranians are Sunni and the Saudis are Shia. And so... Um, and it was interesting because the whole thing went down without the United States involved. Um, and so there's been a lot going on um, uh, in the Middle East, especially, uh, you know, we, we've had the Abraham Accords from the Trump administration. Israel has been normalizing relations. And most importantly, and what the big mover in the Middle East right now is Turkey. Turkey has really been thinking about how to reorder themselves given the Russia-Ukraine war. And so um, that promises to have a big mover if Turkey decides to get closer with NATO, closer with the West, and more into working with the United States and European powers. That will be very disadvantageous for Russia, especially regarding the whole situation in the Black Sea with the blocked grain exports right now. So, um, but the, the, the Chinese brokered... Uh, Saudi Arabia Iran deal is very interesting um, and I don't know if it's gonna hold or it's going to stick but it's a really big deal and having Iran and Saudi Arabia talking again um, is a great thing and when it comes to soft power it's a huge coup for China so it says here that uh, there's no way around it this is a big deal said Amy Hawthorne deputy director for research on 
at the Project on Middle East Democracy, a nonprofit group in Washington. Yes, the United States could not have brokered such a deal right now with Iran specifically, since we have no relations. But in a larger sense, China's prestigious accomplishment vaults it into a new league diplomatically and outshines anything the U.S. has been able to achieve in the region since Biden came to office. Well, she's not wrong. <laughs> oh, so I'm sure that you all have seen the pictures and the video um, of what's going on in Hawaii. Um, very, um, very sad. Um, it says here that uh, uh, survivors described fleeing for their lives from a total inferno that burned through Lahana with such intensity that people escaped into the Pacific Ocean. The U.S. Coast Guard said its sailors had saved 17 lives in the water and located 40 survivors on land. President Biden issued a major disaster declaration on Thursday and offered condolences. Officials have strongly discouraged any new arrivals on Maui, one of America's most beloved tourist destinations, and a part-time home for many billionaires, including Oprah Winfrey and Jeff Bezos. The fire appeared to have been worsened by winds linked to a hurricane passing hundreds of miles away in the Pacific Ocean, though the exact causes are still unclear. Hawaii has battled a surge of fires in recent years as they've become more intense and frequent because of climate change and other causes. Electricity was out and phone services down in parts of Maui, including Lahania. About 11,000 customers across Hawaii were without power on Thursday, according to PowerOutage.us, which compiles data from utilities. And obviously, the situation there is just tragic. I mean, you see these pictures, and it's not just, you know, burnt home. I mean, literally, they have, you know, pictures of whole parking lots of cars completely destroyed, toast. Trees gone, houses, not just burnt but i mean to the ground where there's nothing left you're picking through scraps i mean it's just so i mean it, it looks like a, a, a apocalypse it's just so unbelievably tragic and so unbelievably awful oprah was so adorable she was at the relief shelter in like her normal clothes and she was like, oh, yeah, I wanted to find out what people needed. So I came down here and found out what they needed. Then I, I drove over to the Costco and picked up stuff. And I brought it here. So I have, I have socks. I have pillows. Everyone wanted pillows and pillowcases and all this type of thing. And she was just, you know, had all the stuff and was giving it out. And, you know, you get a pillow. You get a pillow. Everyone gets a pillow. Um, and, uh, um... And so it was really, it was really cute. And there's all this great footage of her just kind of wandering around being like, oh yeah, let me, you know, let me help you out and all this sort of thing. So it was very, very, uh, very cute, but very, very sad situation. And so indicative of the, the times in which we live and the difficulty we're having around weather and climate and the way in which our planet is changing and, uh, you know, the ways in which we must adapt to our new, our new reality um, which I, I was, I was reading some stuff on climate change last night in the whole not being able to sleep thing. And, um, uh, and someone was, you know, getting really into the doomerism aspect of, of climate change and all this type of thing. And I was really proud because people were pointing out how much, you know, more circumspect the IPCC reports are on climate change over the media narratives because, some articles that come out that said, said, oh, two degrees of change is, you know, unadaptable and will never survive and all this type of thing. And that's not really what the report said. Um, 
And I was really proud that people are starting to really dig into the data, dig into the science, have real conversations about what is happening regarding climate. And that, to me, is a good thing. Are more devastating things going to happen like this? Probably. But that's also living on this planet. Climate is not a stable system that never changes. It is changed by a multitude of factors. Now, some of those may be man-made, some of those may not be, but they're changed by a multitude of factors. And to presume that the system is going to stay the same forever is silly, because it's not. Um, it's going to, it is going to change, it is going to move, it is going to uh, be dynamic, because we live on a, on a dynamic planet. And I was really excited that people are, try are finally having that conversation, which I thought was, was very good. Um, uh, more progress in the Hunter Biden story. Um, Attorney General Merrick B. Garland on Friday elevated the federal prosecutor investigating President Biden's son Hunter to the status of special counsel after negotiations to revive a plea deal agreement on tax and gun charges foundered. The move raised the possibility that Mr. Biden could be tried in the politically charged case which seemed resolved until a few weeks ago. The prosecutor, David C. Weiss, has since, 20, has since 2018 investigated a wide array of accusations involving Mr. Biden's business and personal life, including his foreign dealings, drug use, and finances. But as special counsel, Mr. Weiss, who's also the U.S. attorney in Delaware, can pursue charges in any jurisdiction he chooses without seeking the cooperation of local federal prosecutors. The investigation appeared to be near an end in recent months when Mr. Biden agreed to plead guilty to two tax misdemeanors in a deal that would have also allowed him to avoid prosecution on a gun charge. Mr. Weiss, who'd been roundly criticized by Republicans over the terms of the deal, asked Mr. Garland on Tuesday to be named special counsel. Prosecutors from Mr. Weiss's office also filed court papers on Friday indicating that they had reached an impasse with Mr. Biden's lawyers over the proposed plea deal, suggesting that he might now be indicted. Up until a few days ago, the two sides had still been hoping to salvage the deal, but that effort snagged on Mr. Biden's demand for blanket immunity from future prosecution. The special counsel announcement marked a stunning reversal. Just last month, Mr. Weiss denied a claim that he'd asked to be made special counsel. Mr. Garland also scoffed at the idea, saying Mr. Weiss actually possessed more power as a sitting U.S. attorney than he would as special counsel. At a news conference on Friday, Mr. Garland said that Mr. Weiss had concluded the, the investigation had reached a stage in which the powers of a special counsel were necessary. He did not explain what Mr. Weiss meant. And so, um, and then it goes on to talk about the special counsel matters and the more legal wrangling and, um, and all this, and the, most importantly, the Republican vitriol. Um, and, uh, of course, Jim Jordan had to chime in. This is just a new way to whitewash the Biden family's corruption, said Russell Dye, a spokesman for Representative Jim Jordan, Republican of Ohio, and chairman of the Judiciary Committee. Weiss has already signed off on a sweetheart plea deal that was so awful and unfair that a federal judge rejected it. Speaker Kevin McCarthy said House Republicans' investigation would continue regardless of what the Justice Department did. This action by Biden's DOJ cannot be used to obstruct congressional investigations or whitewash the Biden family corruption, he wrote on X, formerly known as Twitter. If Weiss negotiated the sweetheart deal that couldn't get approved, how can he be trusted as special counsel? Because, of course, they all use the same talking points. Um, in other legal news, the Supreme Court has paused an opioid settlement with the Sacklers pending review. A federal appeals court had signed off on the agreement which would shield members of the wealthy Sackler family from opioid-related lawsuits in exchange for billions to resolve thousands of claims. 
Uh, the Supreme Court on Thursday temporarily blocked a bankruptcy deal for Purdue Pharma that would have shielded members of the billionaire Sackler family, which once controlled the company, from additional civil lawsuits over the opioid epidemic that capped the Sackler's personal liability at $6 billion. The order is likely to delay any payments to the thousands of plaintiffs who have sued the Sacklers in Purdue, the maker of the prescription painkiller OxyContin, which is widely blamed for igniting the opioid crisis. Under the deal, the Sacklers had agreed to pay billions of plaintiffs in exchange for full immunity from all civil legal disputes. The order was in response to a Justice Department objection to the plan, which the government said allowed members of the Sackler family to take advantage of legal protections meant for debtors in financial distress, not for billionaires. The Justice has said they would hear arguments in December to decide whether the agreement is authorized by the U.S. Bankruptcy Code, the case which could have far-reaching implications for similar lawsuits. That is because the Purdue Agreement involves a popular but controversial practice, resolving lawsuits about mass injuries through bankruptcy courts, rather than allowing the cases to make their way through the traditional court system. In many of these agreements, third parties, in this instance the Sacklers, are shielded from liability without being required to declare bankruptcy. So what are the Sacklers getting out of this, said Lindsay Simon, an associate professor at Emory University School of Law and a bankruptcy expert. They're getting one deal to be done, whereas if they didn't get it, individuals could still sue them forever. Put simply, Ms. Simon said, they get all the benefit with none of the costs. A representative for the Sackler family did not respond to a request for comment. A spokeswoman for Purdue Pharma said in a statement that it was confident in the legality of the bankruptcy plan. And finally... We're going to wrap up a little bit early today because, again, tired, didn't sleep last night. Um, might be seeing a breakthrough on Hollywood Studios and the writers. Um, it says here on Bloomberg that Hollywood Studios have offered writers a new deal with the push from Netflix and Bob Iger to end strike. Hollywood Studios have made a new offer to striking screenwriters that includes concessions on issues such as the use of artificial intelligence and access to viewer data, according to people familiar with the discussions. The Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which represents big media companies such as Warner Brothers Discovery and Paramount Global, has agreed to ensure humans are credited as writers of screenplays rather than replacing them with artificial intelligence. The companies will also share their data on the number of hours viewed on streaming services so writers can see how popular their programs are according to the people who are asked not to identify discussing private negotiations. Netflix co-chief executive officer Ted Sarandos has emerged as a strong force seeking to reach a deal with the writers, according to the people. More recently, Walt Disney Company CEO Bob Iger has joined him in pressing for an agreement. The Writers Guild of America, which represents some 11,500 scribes nationally, went on strike May 2nd, seeking higher pay and other changes to a contract they said hadn't kept pace with the rise of streaming TV and other technologies. The strike, coupled with one by the Screen Actors that began in July, has largely shut down production of new films and scripted TV shows. The Guild and the studios met on August 11th when the new terms were delivered. They're scheduled to meet again Tuesday to discuss the union's response. Other parts of the offer include a better than 20% increase in residual payments made to writers when their shows appear on networks other than the original one they're made for. They've also proposed salary increases and a minimum duration of work for writers in mini-rooms, where a smaller number of scribes work before a show is picked up or renewed. The studios are offering a 5% hike in base pay in the first year, an increase in the previous 4% offer. The writers have been asking for a 6% raise in the first year of the three-year contract. So we'll see how all that shakes out. They'll meet tomorrow, and I'm sure there'll be more news for us to cover next week on all of that. So thank you all so much for watching. I really appreciate it. I'm going to go get some rest. I have been wearing makeup since 9.30 this morning. <laughs> so I'm going to go wash my face, feel better about my life,
get something to drink and uh, and go from there. So thank you all so much for watching. I really appreciate it. And I will see you all next week on the Cameron Journal News Hour. Thanks so much now. Bye-bye. That's all for this episode of the Cameron Journal Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Visit us online at CameronJournal.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I love to talk to my followers and listeners, so please feel free to uh, get us on social media at Cameron Carolyn on Twitter. And we'll see you next time on the Cameron Journal Podcast.